Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. And the message is entitled, The Believer's Exalted Position. Paul has uh, presented the Jew and Gentile as one in Christ. Christians, neither Jew nor Gentile, but Christians, comprising the church and body of Jesus Christ. This is the wealth of the believer by the love of God. Chapter 1, 2, and 3. So Paul now describes the new relationship of the Gentile by three metaphors summing up the new Gentile Jewish church of Jesus Christ as Christians in verses 19 through 22. Let me read. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a, whole, a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Paul's description here of the new relationship of the Gentile through these three metaphors is as follows. First, fellow citizens of God's kingdom, the beginning of verse 19. Second, family members of God's household, the rest of 19. Down to the beginning of, or all of 20 also, 19 and 20. And then the last one, fitted stones for God's house, 21 and 22. Three metaphors that speak very clearly and communicate very um, wealthily in, a, in, a, in a, a great uh, description of all that entails uh, affection, love, protection, uh, everything that is, is put into these metaphors. He begins with the first metaphor of fellow citizens of God's kingdom, verse 19, the first part. Notice the Apostle Paul declared the Gentiles are no longer outside of the kingdom of God. Listen what he says. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. Paul is summing up the logical argument based on what he has stated about the atoning work of Jesus in the preceding verses about Gentiles. The word now means accordingly, consequently, or these things being so. Then the word therefore indicates the conclusion of the spiritual position of the Gentiles. The evidence is undeniable and irrefutable that is going to be looked at from verse 14 to 18. In verse 14, in view of the fact that Jesus is our peace and has made both Jew and Gentile, one having broken down the middle wall of separation, verse 15, in view of the fact that Jesus has abolished in his flesh the enmity of the new of the law of commandments contained in ordinances, creating in himself one new man from the two, Jew and Gentile, and making peace. Verse 16. In view of the fact that Jesus reconciled Jew and Gentile to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. 
Verse 17, in view of the fact that Jesus came and preached the gospel of peace to you Gentiles who were afar off, as well as the Jews who were near. And verse 18, in view of the fact that through Jesus, both Jew and Gentile have access by one spirit to the Father. In view of all this, it's like if you're adding up your bills and you've got 15 bills and you say $100, $15, $10, $1, and you put them all down, then you draw a line and you start adding. And you're going to get your total. This is what he's doing here. Paul is describing the miraculous new position of the Gentile in the kingdom of God emphatically by setting it and stating it in the negative Listen to his words again, no longer strangers, it means foreigners. In a nation or city for a short or longer stay, and they were simply tolerated because of prejudice. That's always in the world, whether it be nationally, whether it be racially, whether it be whatever it is, whether it be uh, the type of job, the position of, of society or economics, uh, man is always comparing in, in a pecking order. A licensed sojourner in a town whose protection and status were secured by the payment of a small tax, Linsky, the Greek scholar, tells us. So they weren't full citizens and they could pay that protection. You know, today you, um, you pay taxes... Um, um, for the roads and everything. And in some of our cities, um, the cities have taken back our streets and now you have to get parking permits to park on the street, though you've paid for them. Okay? Kind of the same kind of stuff. Um, no longer foreigners, notice, indicates someone who lives in a place without the rights of citizenship altogether. Having no rights or protection. The same word was used of being strangers from the common, or from the covenant of promise in verse 12. Having no hope and without God in the world, the darkest description of mankind. But then notice that the Apostle Paul declared that Gentiles were now inside the kingdom of God. Now he declared that from the negative. Now he hits it from the positive. But fellow citizens with the saints. Paul told them they were some of the people that comprised the kingdom of God. Now, the Jews never told them that. They never told themselves that. What they understood as Gentiles, they were so far removed from God that God had created the Gentiles just to kindle the fires of hell. The word but could be translated nevertheless, notwithstanding, making a sharp contrast and pointing their high privileged position. These Gentiles had um, equal standing as the Jews. Uh, we read it and we study it and we don't get moved by it. But if you were a slave and they freed you 
And they read you your freedom that you had now, the rights that you had, the privileges. We wouldn't be sitting here as cool and calm and collective as we are. (laughs) If you had been persecuted for your nationality wherever you lived and all of a sudden all the rights were given to you, your emotions, your, your response would be completely different. And so we, we, we are so far removed from the, uh, the, the emotional nerve and the reality of that world. They were fellow citizens. It means possessing the same citizenship with others. It's a compound word. Son means with and the word police, an inhabitant of a city. The tense is the indicative present active. In other words, they are ongoing citizens. It isn't something that's been given them for a temporary time. It's theirs. The word appears only this time in the New Testament. Notice Paul indicated who they were citizens with. The saints. The word saints, as we've seen before, is the word hagios. In its most basic meaning, it means to be set apart for God. We get words like sanctification, um, being set aside for God. Um, God had saved them and forgiven them and embraced them through the gospel and now has set them apart for himself. But the saints here are indicative of the Jews who had um, become Christians by the gospel too. So they are citizens with those Jews who were also citizens of the kingdom of God. But not all Jews were citizens of the kingdom of God. Not just because they were born Jews, not just because they had gone through ritual circumcision, or not just because they kept all the dietary laws, but because they had accepted Christ Jesus as their Messiah. And they were neither Jew nor Gentile, but Christians, one in Christ Jesus. There's a big difference. You see, the Gentiles were never citizens of Israel or the kingdom of God. Unless they proselyted in. And then you had two kinds of proselytes. Those who were God-fears and those who were proselytes at the gate. And uh, one went all the way and even were circumcised. The others just kept dietary laws. But now in Christ Jesus, they didn't have to worry about any of those two things. They were welcomed by God as citizens of the kingdom of God. As a person receives citizenship, they receive all rights and privileges. Maybe um, you are not um, a natural citizen of America. Maybe you came here when you were supposed to come here legally. And you went through the whole process. And you immigrated by soliciting the uh, application of citizenship. And you came and you came in your required time and you took the test and you did it all. And one day they called you down to L.A. and they read you your citizenship and had you raise your right hand. 
And they said, now you are a citizen of the United States. And they handed you your passport. That was a great day. <laughs> because for the most part, people in the past who came to America saw America as a great nation. A nation of opportunity. Not merely a nation to get money, but of great opportunity first for themselves to give a better life for their children. And that their children would have a better place to flourish and make their way in the world. And the experience of those foreigners that came here was quite different than those who are entitled, believing that they are allowed or should be given automatic citizenship just because they think they deserve it. Never has any country or civilization ever believed that. Do you realize that if you go on vacation to any European country, that you have to make sure that you leave that country when your visa's expired or you will be thrown in jail? And you cannot stay a day after that visa unless you've made plans for that and preparation for that and you can prove that you are going to be working and you're not going to be taking money from that country away from the citizens of that country. Do you know that? <laughs> Only in America can you come and you take, you get all the benefits in the last 10 years or 15 years. Never was it so. And so these Gentiles, they did it the right way. They came through Christ. They were humble. They were broken. They were thankful and grateful to God. Some people base their citizenship in heaven as having their names in a church role. Others in their baptism. But not in the new birth through the word and the Holy Spirit. And that's a great mistake. Because your name is written in some church scroll doesn't mean that you'll be in heaven. That you have been dunked in water doesn't mean that you will be in heaven. But if you've been born again, even as Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, 3 through 5, you must be born again or you'll never see the kingdom of God. That is the key. Where you see yourself as a sinner separated from God because of sin and under God's wrath. In need of a Savior through repentance for His forgiveness of sins to transform my heart and my mind. And that is the only way that anybody will enter the kingdom of God and it's by grace through faith. Others uh, base it on their moral living, their good deeds or their moral life. Because they haven't done certain things, committed certain things and somehow they are just a notch better than everybody else. But when you open the scriptures and you look to the Bible, it says that all have fallen short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23. That there's none good, no, not one, not even you, not even I. 
And so comparison is not against each other, but against God. Me against God. A holy God. I'm a sinful man. He's the Savior. I'm the one that needs to be saved. He's the forgiver. I'm the one in need of forgiveness. I am dead. He is alive. And so the perspective has to be biblical. So that I can put my finger on the scripture and say, this is why I can tell you what I tell you. This is why I do what I do. Because the Bible says this. All are saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves, the gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, as we've seen. The believer's citizenship is in relationship to the kingdom of God through the gospel. There's no other way. Now, today in our world and in our nation, we're being pressed, extremely pressed to compromise with the gospel, to be intimidated. By the secular progressive liberals, by the socialists, by the Marxists. And they don't want judgment to be made. They don't want specifics to be stated. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 9, 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Jesus came and preached the gospel of the kingdom. Not everybody liked it. Not everybody was all embracing of it. Many of them hated Jesus for it. Rejected it. Jesus says, nevertheless... Do not rejoice, speaking to his disciples, in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven, Luke 10, 20. The joy is that my name is written in heaven. That I have taken that step to be born again, and that's how I know my name is written in heaven. And that I can look at my life, and my life reflects what the Bible says the Christian is to be, a new creature. Never perfect, but definitely a, a line of demarcation between a habit of life and sin and one that's a habit of life of pleasing God. Paul put it this way, And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. 1 Corinthians fifteen forty nine through 50. So this body, this life is for here for a set time. And as I look at my life and every time I have a birthday, I'm, I'm getting closer to the finish line. And the older I get, the less tape measure I have. <laughs> I'm getting short. And guys were overseas in, in the 60s. A lot of my friends and my brother, they'd go to Nam for 13 months. And when they were getting uh, 
close to coming home. They say I'm getting short. And uh, as we walk through this life, and we begin in our teens or our 20s, we move into our 30s, 40s, and, you know, it doesn't look that bad. Then we're coming to 50, and all of a sudden, oh, and then 60, and, and we know that we stick our neck out. We can see the finish line. And um, one day my body will be transformed. This body is just for here for a set time. It's temporal. Uh, one day I will put this body off and it will go back to the dust. And by the grace of God, he will give me a glorified body when he raises me from the grave. But I will be instantly present with the Lord the minute I give up my last breath. So when you read um, in the newspaper that Xavier died, don't believe him. I moved. I moved. Philippians 3, 20 through 21 says, For our citizenship is, citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. All things. In fact, when Jesus rose from the dead, there were many uh, that rose from the grave and walked in the city, Matthew 26 tells us. And they saw them walking in the city as evidence of the resurrection of what was to come. So the Gentiles here were citizens of God's kingdom. A high privileged position. By grace. Second metaphor uses in verse 19 at the end and verse 20 is the family members of God's household. The Apostle Paul declared the Gentiles were in the family of God now and members of the household of God. So Paul points out here the Gentiles had entered into a personal and intimate relationship. With God. There is a difference between you hanging out with somebody and being friends and being brothers with the same mother and the same father. Or there's a difference between you having a friend who is the opposite sex and having a wife. There's a big difference in that relationship. He already told the Jews and Gentiles this relationship was made possible through the Son, Jesus Christ, in verse 18. He also told the Jews in the same verse and the Gentiles they had access by one spirit. And that access was to the Father. So they have the same father. You talk about the thrill, the excitement, the exhilaration of these Gentiles. That God was their father. Now, you understand that the reference to father is never found in the Old Testament to the Jew. It's never stated. When it's stated, it's the father to the nation but never to the individual Jew. It's in the New Testament 
then we get this doctrine of God being our father individually. It's never to the Jew in the Old Testament, but to the nation, he's the father of the nation. And all of a sudden, the Jews came into this new relationship, intimate with the Lord, as well as the Gentiles, being equal, not distinct, not different, not of a second class, but the same. Paul pointed out the Gentiles had many brothers and sisters in the family of God. All are called saints. He opens the epistle in chapter 1, verse 1. You have it in verse 15, verse 18, 3, 8, 3, 18, 4, 12, 5, 3, 6, 18. Saints, 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 saints. Jew, Gentile. Same identity. All blessed with every spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 3. All chosen, chosen in Jesus to be holy and without blame and love. Ephesians 1, 4. All predestined to adoption as sons and daughters by Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 5. All God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we might walk in them. Ephesians 2, 10. No distinction. And then notice Paul pointed out the Gentiles had been endowed with the love of God for those in the family of God. Paul had heard about it. Their love. Chapter 1, verse 15 says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, Jew or Gentile, Gentile or Jew, there's this camaraderie, and, and, and as, as you come to the Lord, I don't know where you came from or where you where God pulled you out of, but in the world, you know, you have your own little clique and your own little group that you hang out with, and, you know, you are tight and your buddies, and, you know, you'll die for each other and whatever, you know, and, um, and anybody else, ah, that was no light, you know, and then, then you come to the Lord, and, and you're hanging out with people that you would have never hung out, and, and when you see them, hey, how you doing, brother? Give me a hug. You know, you just, if they would have showed you a little clip of that when you were in high school or 10 years before the Lord, you would say, there's no way, man. It's the love that God gives to us, knowing that he has been so loving to us, so gracious to us. In chapter 2, verse 4, as Paul told them the love of God was the motive to save them. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. This is God's agape love. This is not having to do with the physical sexual love. It has nothing to do with the emotional filial love. It has nothing to do with the uh, storge family love of the human race. It has to do with God's love. God's motivation for saving us was his love, but God could not save us by his love, and God never saved us by his love. And there are a lot of Christians who believe that we're saved by the love of God. No, we're not. We are saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the payment of that sin. God cannot save you by his love unless he has a means by which to justify the forgiveness of sin. Someone had to die. God so loved the world, the motivation, 
that he made a way, he gave his only begotten son to die. So his motivation was his love for us, but the execution of that payment was the death of his son. Now, having met his requirements, now he can bestow that love to you and I. Just like you, if you're a parent and you have a wayward son or daughter. And you know you love them. And you know you want to bless them. You want to do all kinds of things for them. But they've chosen to live a certain lifestyle. And you cannot be part of that or go along with it. Lest you be part of the problem or the greater part of the problem. And so you pray and you warn and you confront when you have to. And and hope that they might repent and turn and come to God. For the whole purpose that then once having repented. Now you can bestow the blessing of your love upon them. You want to bestow it upon them, but if you bestow it upon them in sin, you're, you're part of the problem. But if they repent from that sin, now that love bestowed upon them becomes a great blessing. It's a whole different thing. Paul desired that they would yield to God's love for each other in the body of the church. He's going to say this throughout the epistle, 317 319, 4 2, 4 15, and 5 2. We'll be running into it. Remember the uh, division that outlined for Ephesians, chapter 1, 2, and 3. The wealth of the believer by the love of God, chapter 4, down to 5 before the, the, um, uh, the armor, I believe, verse 9 or something. I believe it's nine. Don't believe it's nine. I believe it's nine. It's the love of um, the wealth, of the, the the walk of the believer um, by the love of God, and then you have the warfare of the believer through the love of God. So the wealth by the love of God, the uh, walk in the love of God, and the warfare through the love of God. That's the three divisions. But the the whole heart of Ephesians is the love of God. Nothing will allow me to get through life except the love of God. As I yield to God's spirit, as I live out God's word, that's the key. Now, we shouldn't confuse love as being permissive again. Too many people do this and it's not permissive. Paul wanted the love of God to be expressed in marriage and in family. He'll get to that in chapter 5, verse 25, 28, and 33. Paul closes the epistle to those who love the Lord Jesus. Grace be with you and all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. In chapter 6, verse 24. He begins with the love. He ends with the love. Look at 20. The Apostle Paul declared the stability of the Gentiles in the family of God. Paul affirmed that these Gentiles had believed and accepted the gospel message of repentance to enter the kingdom of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The foundation laid by the apostles and prophets refers to Jesus here. 
They had believed Jesus to be the God-man conceived by the Holy Spirit of God, Messiah. They had believed Jesus atoned for their sins by dying and being raised from the dead, dying in their place. They had believed that Jesus had forgiven them of their sins. Paul the Apostle put it this way to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3.11, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So he's not saying that the apostles and prophets are the foundation, but that the apostles and prophets laid the foundation, and now these hearers had built upon that foundation the gospel. Jesus is that foundation, but because he's going to use Jesus as a cornerstone, he doesn't use him both in the same metaphor. But the foundation that the apostles and the prophets laid was Jesus Christ, the gospel. The Greek has the article making apostles and prophets one class, we are told by the scholars. These are not referring to the Old Testament prophets, but the apostles and prophets of the New Testament indicated even by the way he uses it in the letter. He'll say it again in 3, 5, where he says, which in other ages, meaning the gospel, was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit, by his holy apostles and prophets. That's New Testament. Old Testament, they had partial revelation. The New Testament, apostles and prophets had a complete revelation of the gospel. Again, in chapter 4, verse 11, he'll use the same combination. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastor teachers. So the way he uses both of these terms is New Testament. Certainly the 12 commissioned by Jesus are included and men like Agabus, Philip and Barnabas in Acts 21, 9, 10 and 13, 1 um, and others. The Gentiles, notice, built on this solid foundation. The phrase having been built is a participle aorist passive, we're told. The aorist points back to the past fact and the passive points back to God as the agent. God is doing this. He's working in us and through us. The word built means to finish the structure on which the foundation has already been laid. So they're saved and they're building. They had abandoned their pagan beliefs and concepts about God. And then notice Paul confirmed that these Gentiles, their faith was solely on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The word cornerstone means at the tip of the angle, the Greek scholar Linsky tells us. A lot of weird concepts are brought up at this point in sermons, which really are foreign to the text here. Um, the stone would be placed at the extreme corner or the corner foundational stone. And this stone would not only be the foundation of the building part of it there in the corner, but would determine the angle of the wall for the alignment to plumb each stone 
erected on those walls. So the angle of that cornerstone would determine the angle of the wall. If it was a 90 degree angle, then those trajectories would line up that wall symmetrically aligned. If it was an acute angle or an obtuse angle, then such would follow it, whether it's broader, whether it's wider, and the lines would be straight. You know that when you're going to make something straight, you draw a string, right? A chalk line, pow, snap it. You're going to hang some wallpaper, drop a plumb line. It's straight. And this is what the cornerstone is talking about. The word is used only one other time in the New Testament, quoting Isaiah. Listen to Isaiah. Um, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. First Peter two six through seven. Peter quotes Isaiah twenty eight sixteen, a little different. This quote is from Psalms one eighteen twenty two. The commentary is, this was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in his eyes in verse 23 of Psalm 118. Now, as you know, Jesus also pointed to this in the gospel, that he was the chief cornerstone, the stone of stumbling that the builders rejected. And he identified himself with this stone, this cornerstone. Jesus aligns and plumbs each of us with the Father himself and the Holy Spirit. That trajectory, you go down to the airport and you watch these planes get in line and they start down the runway and they've, they've got to follow that center line. They've got to set their course and they will be right on time. They're just uh, one degree off. By the time they get down to the end of the runway, it's not even measurable. But as they travel thousands of miles and that one degree is projected, as you know, is when you cut a pie, the center all looks together. But when you draw those lines at the end, the end of the pie is a lot wider. <laughs> and you'll never hit your destination. And so we align ourselves with Jesus Christ, the word of God, the gospel. So that we are aligned with the Father. And it's the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, that does this. And he's going to repeat this at the end on what he does for us. Their position as sons is incredible and the privilege of access to the Father by this Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity. This is the invisible church, the real church, not the one that we uh, see visibly every day. Not everybody who says they're Christian is a Christian. Not every church that gathers together is doctrinally accurate or is trusting Jesus Christ. So the invisible church is very much alive, very fit, waiting for the Lord's return. It is healthy, it is strong, but it's the invisible church that he's talking about here. Not all the visible individuals that we see. Paul used the term in Romans for a son. It's a Greek term that indicates that 
under Roman law that you could give the place of adoption to someone who was not even your own son. And when you made him an adopted son, you were giving him a position and would be recognized as a natural born son. So a Roman who wanted to leave all that he had to a slave, if he would, would adopt them in the documents unusing that word would say that he was as a natural son while ignoring his natural born sons of any inheritance. And it would be totally legal. It would be recognized. And that's what has happened. The Lord has adopted us as natural born sons through Jesus Christ. Each of us must beware that we're not building on any other foundation other than that of the person and teaching of Jesus Christ. Acts 2.42, it says, They continue steadfastly in apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. A lot of times people don't like when you emphasize doctrine. They say, why do you guys make such a big deal about doctrine? Don't you guys ever do anything else, dance around or, you know, or have a play, you know, bingo or something? Why are you guys always studying the Word of God? Because that's all there is to do. We're supposed to study the Word of God and then go live it. And worship the Lord in our obedience, in our praises, in what we do. 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 4 says, as Paul telling Timothy, as I urged uh, you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables or endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. So Paul, Paul did not tolerate anybody teaching any other doctrine. Now, people... Today, reading Paul would say he was a control freak. No, he was a faithful shepherd. Because he knew that any other doctrine apart from Jesus Christ would only deceive and destroy people. Once you come to the light, you know that everything else is darkness. There's various shades of darkness. But light dispels darkness. And once darkness has been dispelled, you can't be quiet. You can't just go along with the program. History has proven that. That's why Christians have died. They have died crying out to God that God would forgive and save those who were putting them to death. Now, I don't know how true this is, I'll just take it with a grain of salt, I forget exactly who told me but there, you know, all the beheadings that have been going on over there with ISIS with uh, some of those Christians Coptic Christians that when they grabbed some of them to to behead them then there was a Muslim who was taken along with them and as he saw how these Coptic Christians were facing their executioners and the faith they had in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he accepted the Lord. And he said that he wanted to be like them. I mean, things like that are all over in history. That God would touch the heart of individuals even in such a time and such a place and such a 
circumstance that that would be the only and the last time perhaps that individual had he would take it. We talk about the grace of God and the power of God. Amazing. All that we are or ever will be is due to our alignment with and to the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. We were the crooked ones, the only one that's straight is Jesus, and the only one that can straighten us out is Jesus through repentance so we can be his workmanship in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.10. We become sons and daughters and joiners with Jesus Christ, as Romans 8.17 says. All that belongs to Jesus belongs to us. Paul puts it this way, therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. I will receive you, I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. 2 Corinthians six seventeen through 18. Coming out. There must be a break with darkness. The family and household of God goes beyond denominational barriers. The invisible church on earth and the visible church in heaven. Listen to Ephesians 3, 14 and 15. For this reason I bow my knee to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. A lot of the church is already in heaven. <laughs> 2,000 years of it. We're the last batch. <laughs> from here to the end. But not everything we see down here is the church. Each of us are to know how to conduct ourselves as a family of God. In 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul says, But if I am delayed, as he writes to Timothy, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the church. The house of God, the church of the living God, the pillar the ground of the truth. That's not what's going on in much of the church today. It's the house of men. The church of dead individuals. Pillar and ground of deception. Churches believe that they're there to make people happy. To entertain them. To give in to whatever they want. To be all inclusive. Without pointing out sin. Well, that's not the church of Jesus Christ. It's the church of man. It's religion. Philosophy. We're to be known by our love. Therefore... As, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are the household of faith, Galatians 6.10. And so God will give us opportunities as we journey through this life. We will meet people that we will be very, very close to through our life. Sometimes closer than our own family members. We will be there for each other. We will go the extra mile. Um, we'll cry together, we'll rejoice together, uh, we'll spend a lot of time together, um, the family of God. And so, 
family of the Gentiles were members of God's household here. Family. Notice thirdly, 21 and 22. Fitted stones for God's house now. This is the third metaphor. The Apostle Paul declared each person individually is a temple for God. Paul affirms again the consistent link, Jesus, in whom the foundation of the apostles and prophets in verse 20 and the chief cornerstone. Paul confirmed the church as a whole is comprised of many individuals as we've seen before. The whole building being joined together. Every individual is being joined together in and by Jesus. It's nothing that we do. Jesus does this. The phrase being joined together means to connect or frame closely together and is found only one other time in the New Testament in chapter 4, verse 16. As he gets there for the purpose of the church to perfect the saints through the work of ministry and every joint doing its, its uh, work. This is a participle present middle. Um, it's done by the Lord. He's putting it together. The metaphor is the highest privilege of the three. I become the temple of God. That God would dwell in me. That God would dwell in you. What a high privilege. Notice Paul stated the particular individual comprises the temple of God. Grows up into a holy temple in the Lord. And the word grows there means simply to make grow or to cause to grow. The tense again, indicative, present, active. It's ongoing. You've come to Christ and God is the one doing this work. Jesus is constantly adding to his church. Jesus is constantly adding to our lives spiritually as we study, as we pray, as we walk, as we lift our hearts to him. The composite of its individual sons and daughters are growing into a holy temple in the Lord. The word for temple is now is indicating the holy and holy of holies of the temple in Jerusalem. Not the precinct, not the courts, but the holy of holies where the Shekinah glory would be. This is our body. The temple of God is an organism, not an organization. Individually, an organism. Corporately, an organism. In geometry, we have an axiom that no part is greater than the whole, and the whole is equal to some of its parts. That's the church. No part is greater than the whole, or no part is greater than any other part. But the sum of the parts equals the whole body of Jesus Christ, him being the head. Then notice in 22, the Apostle Paul declared the holy temple comprised of united believers for the habitation of God corporately. Paul expanded here the understanding of the church body beyond the individual or local church body in whom you also are built, are being built together in whom again Jesus Christ. Being built together denotes inner spiritual union and is found only this time in the New Testament. No divisions nationally. 
No divisions culturally. No divisions economically. And you can just keep it on going. All the differences that you and I may have from where we live, how we live, the type of car, the clothes, everything else, none of that touches us regarding our unity in Jesus Christ. None of that affects it. None of that should ever make a difference at all. The word you is in the plural, Jew and Gentile together, wherever the church may be. Having the same Savior. Having the same Lord. Having the same scriptures. So Paul explains this was made possible by the Spirit. He's talked to us about the Spirit already a few times. Now he again comes to it because they're all wrapped together. For in a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And the word dwelling simply means a habitation to abide in, an abode. The only other time it is found is for Babylon, the habitations of demons in the Great Tribulation in Revelation 18.2. The only other time it's found. This habitation takes place by the Holy Spirit, Numa. It refers to the third person of the Trinity. We've been introduced to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We come back here to the third person. Every believer has the Holy Spirit when they're born again. But that is distinct from being empowered or baptized with the Holy Spirit as Jesus declared in Acts 1.5 and 1.8. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. That's the empowerment, the baptism, Acts 1.5, The minute a person is born again, they receive the Holy Spirit. You cannot be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. But the empowerment is for service. It enables me to do what God calls me to do. My motivation is to be agape love. Now sometimes, and many of the Calvaries used to teach that agape love is the true evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It cannot be. The baptism is for empowerment. Agape love is the motivation. God's not going to reward me for the empowerment of what I do, but he's going to reward me for why and how I do it. They're two distinct things. So love is not the true evidence of the baptism. The baptism is for empowerment, for service. Agape loves the motivation why and how I do the things I do. And for that, God will reward me or not. The Holy Spirit binds, unites, and coordinates every local church, regardless of the number of people. And it includes the entire church worldwide. The Holy Spirit dwells in us individually and corporately, as a church locally, and as the entire body of the church of Jesus Christ throughout the whole world. All at the same time. (laughs) And he does his work. Amazing. And Solomon quarried out stones that would fit perfectly 
without any mortar. No hammer or chisel was heard on the temple site. So the Lord has fit us together perfectly, united by his grace, by his love, by his spirit, by his word, to do the work of God, to be like him, to yield to him. We need to constantly remind ourselves that our bodies, our souls, and our spirits make up the temple of God. It's easy to lose sight of it. We can become lax. We can become indifferent at times. We can just get lazy. Second Corinthians 6.16 says, And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. As you know, he's speaking to Corinthians who are going to the pagan temples and partaking of some of the feasts and the foods and the worship of demons and there was prostitution. And, and he says, what are you doing? Come out from among them. We must constantly be aware of our importance to the life of the body of the church, how we can add or take away from it. None of us are uh, expendable. None of us are useless. We all fit somewhere. We're interdependent, affecting one another. We are interdependent. We uh, need one another. Um, this hand needs the arm. The arm needs the shoulder. Uh, we're all joined together. The eye cannot say to the ear, I have no need of you. If the, all, the body was all one eye, where would the hearing be? And Paul makes his physical illustration to, to make it so clear, and yet we lose sight of it. And somehow we think, well, I'm, I'm not, I just, so people just come and they go. They don't get involved. People just figure that that's their gift. It is not. Or people just figure, well, I just go once in a while, and, you know, they don't even know that I'm there or not, and, you know. And, but this is nothing new. This has always been the case. God deals with people. We're bad news. <laughs> it's just the way it is. Listen to uh, Paul the Apostle in uh, Romans 12, 3 through 5. Um, he says, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ Individually, members one of another. Individually, but yet corporately. The concept of individualism is foreign to the Bible. And yet many Christians live out their Christian life as this worldly individual concept. Me, 
The word joy, Jesus, others, then you. You come last. (laughs) The world puts you first. Sin, I, the middle letter. That's what happens with sin, I. When I put I first, it becomes sin to me. Because I think of myself instead of others. When I serve myself, I exalt myself above others. I'm here to serve you. You're here to serve me. We're here to serve those who come here. That's the whole body ministry. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 through 13 says, But one thing, um, but one and the same spirit works all things together distributing to each one individually as he wills. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of the one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we, are, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. We have the same divine nature by the Spirit of God. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 4. That we might live in such a way of godliness that we can escape the corruption of the world by the grace of God. We are gathered as the dwelling of God's Spirit tonight as a corporate body of Christ individually comprising that church. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5 says, Coming to him as living stones, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer a spiritual sacrifice acceptable God through Jesus Christ. Individually, corporately, collectively, as we worship him. You see, Jesus says, I will build my church in Matthew 16, 18. This is the good news that Paul has to share with the Gentiles. The Gentiles were fitted stones for God's house. Amazing. So Paul has described this new relationship to the Gentiles by these three metaphors. Fellow citizens of God's kingdom, family members of God's household, and fittest stones for God's house. Wow. His temple. What a privilege. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, your goodness. Deal with our hearts and we thank you for just your grace, Lord, and all that you do for us, Lord. We thank you for just your marvelous grace over those who are lost and how you pursue them and how you prompt them, Lord, to just fall under your conviction. And, Lord, you wait to see if they will bow. Father, we thank you for your grace. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought you here to be saved. Maybe you're over the internet. If you believe what you heard tonight and that Jesus is the only way you can be forgiven, 
and that he alone can make you part of his church if you believe that he is the savior of the world, the one who took your place on the cross. And that if you will repent, he will forgive you of your sins and you can call upon him right now. This is your prayer of repentance and he says he will forgive you and he will give to eternal life. So if you desire to be born again, you can repeat this prayer right where you sit. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.